Memorials have a vital place in the United States as well as the world. We memorialize fallen soldiers, uh, leading figures, key historical events, and tragic circumstances. Think of the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, uh, World War I and World War II memorials, Flight 93 or 9-11 Memorial, the Holocaust Memorials. We also memorialize lives. We set up family funerals for loved ones. We include memorial releases like butterflies and doves and balloons and lanterns. Memorial jewelry, jewelry, rings, lockets, and necklaces, videos and portraits, memorial trees, memorial food and drinks and clothes, things that are testaments of our loved one. So we can kind of, in a way, experience the memories, be a part of their lives. Memorials serve as our endeavor to capture the meaning of a life or an event in a world that is passing away. Uh, We name streets, buildings, parks. We don't want to forget. We should not forget. Sometimes people ask me in pastoral ministry, it's a question I get often, uh, what they should do or say when they are meeting with someone who has lost a loved one. Is it good to talk about the loved one? Will the memories recall the pain and sorrow? And my answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, yes what? We recount the stories, they will bring pain and sorrow, but it is a pain and sorrow that reminds us of these threads of life. In other words, the sorrow and sufferings, difficulties of life act as threads that unite our lives together. So even remembering the joys of somebody's life may evoke sadness, reminds us that life meant something. Our greater fear is that our loved ones will be forgotten. So if I give advice, I would say, well, first, just be there. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is presence. In Psalm 139, can't escape from the presence of God, but also his providential care. And so reflect that. Be present. Sometimes be quiet, as Job's friends should have done. Just be quiet and be there and serve in small, basic ways. That reflects God's providential care of all of his creation. But second, we're there to remember, to provide assurance that life is meaningful. Sometimes we need to wait on the the person that's suffering when they're ready to to talk. And we're watching a nation that is increasingly forgetting its past. The Constitution of America is being interpreted by present leading figures rather than the historical context of the original authors. The importance of freedom of speech and religion. We see that being marginalized, even not only in our borders, but throughout the world. The country is forgetting what has been fought. Our parents and grandparents who lived and fought those wars are dying. But our nation has sought to memorialize these historical events with monuments and museums and holidays so that we wouldn't forget. But sadly, over time, our stories are lost and they fade dimly into the past. Those who stand in the shadow, if you will, of the ancient paths are often misunderstood or ignored or rejected or at worst perceived as a threat. 
Now, my goal is not to talk about our earthly citizenship and identities, but to use that as an illustration to evoke the desire to understand Psalm 66, a memorial of God's redemption in the life of his people. Memorials are vital for the life of God's assembly, God's congregation. It's a memorial in Psalm 66, a memorial of redemption. And God's memorial of redemption here in Psalm 66 is to produce in us a passion for the glory of God's name. And you see that in verse 2, seeing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. But it's also to give God's people an identity with his work. Verse 5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. This Exodus event, the redemption of his people out of Egypt. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. What is fascinating about this memorial is it is acting like a memorial. Memorials will often involve a monument. In this case, it's the Exodus event, the redemption of his people out of Egypt through the sea, where he turns the sea into dry land. But there's also a message. Come and see what God has done. And what does he invite us to consider is the Exodus event in verse 6 of turning the sea into dry land and passing through the river on foot. And there we rejoiced in him. It is there that his rule, his shepherding rule over his own people is demonstrated in verse 7, who rules by his might forever. But notice not only is there a memorial uh, event, there's a message, but also notice the people. We. Did you catch that? Come and see what God has done. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed the river on foot. There, verse 6, did we rejoice in him? Oh, more so, look at verse 8. Look at the corporate congregation. Bless our God, oh people, peoples. Is this not a Hebrew psalm to the nation Israel? Now you're using terms that evoke the nations, Gentiles, coastlands, peoples. In verse 1 and 2, the the whole earth is to shout to God. So this is a a bigger congregation than I thought. You mean, does this include us? If you read the whole of of Scripture, it would. The the Messiah's congregation involves Jew and Gentile brought together, Ephesians 2 says, into one body. One new man is created out of the two, Ephesians 2, 13 through 15. So we're brought into this into this memorial. While we're looking at it, verse 8, bless our God, personal, belongs to us, corporate. O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul, our soul. Wouldn't you say my soul? Our soul? Among the living? And has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver's tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire, through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. What's fascinating is this generation didn't even experience the redemption of God out of Egypt. They're invited to join in through memorial, through this congregational creed and confession. They join in. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, Paul refers to the Corinthian church and says that our fathers passed through the sea. The Corinthian church, our fathers passed through the sea. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could be said to be our fathers. Yes, Galatians reminds us. 
Paul in Galatians 3 reminds us that in being joined to Christ, who's the seed of Abraham, we're joined to Abraham's family by adoption. Wasn't that the promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth would be blessed? So the messianic body, the body of Christ, is invited to consider what God has done as if we were there and we were there because Christ has redeemed his people. And I'd add just a little more nuancing. It's fascinating in Luke 9, 30 and 31 when Christ is being uh, transfigured before his disciples and Moses and Elijah are standing on, on both sides. It, the text says that they were discussing his exodus, his departure. The Greek word, you'll see the footnote there in Luke 9, 31. The, the Greek word for deliverance, um, his departure, uh, is the word exodus. Why were they discussing his exodus? Because the cross event is the, the answer to the exodus event. It is the substance. It is what the exodus event out of Egypt was pointing to. Christ, the Passover lamb. Christ, the one who led his people, Jude says, out of Egypt. Jude reminds us that Jesus was the one that led his people. That's fascinating. First Corinthians reminds us in chapter 10 that Christ was the rock that fed and supplied water for his people. So here we have these redemptive events, the exodus out of Egypt, and then we have the cross event, where it wasn't that Christ, if you will, led his people through the Red Sea in the same way at the cross event, but think of the heavens being split and Christ coming down to the cross to lead his people through uh, the judgment of death and shame and guilt and through his resurrection to lead his people back through the heavens and to the holy temple. Typologically represented in the Exodus event where God comes through the wilderness, Moses as the prophet of God, a shadow of Christ to take his people out of Egypt through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, through the Jordan River into the promised holy land. We're all brought into this story. And we're invited to come and see what God has done. I can't get in a time machine and go there. We do it confessionally. We do it creedally, even as we're here announcing what God has done together corporately. Now, to be impressed with God's name and God's work, there's two things we want to consider. Uh, Number one, remember God's memorial redemption so that we would adore the glory of God's name and work, we do so by considering the glory of God's redeeming name. The glory of God's redeeming name. And then we're going to look, and that's verses 1 through 7. The glory of God's redeeming name is to evoke praise and worship. And then verses 8 through 20, we want to look at the glory of God's refining work. The glory of God's refining work. And this, this is a memorial of redemption. We're joining together. It's creedal. It's confessional. We're going to join together as the body of the Messiah And rejoice in what he has done out of the Exodus event out of Egypt, reminding us, ultimately pointing forward to the Exodus event where Christ has stepped out of the heavens, parted the heavens, to bring salvation to us. We're going to come and see what he has done. Now let me just again underline this confessional, congregational aspect here. Uh, Again, look at verse 5. Come and see what God has done. That, That is an invitation that's used of processionals uh, to Jerusalem for a worship festival. Pomp and circumstance. The psalmist invites the congregation of believers in the present 
to come and behold the work which God did in the past to deliver Israel out of Egypt, to bring them through the Red Sea and the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Come and see what he's done. Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. So we're invited as a people. We've already looked at the plural pronouns, the congregation of God's people. They're united in a confession. We're to bless God together. We're making a response. But then as we just look at the character of this psalm in verses 13 through 20, we have a leading representative. He's offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And ultimately, in the testimony of Scripture, we want to be reminded that it is the Messiah, ultimately, that will offer not sacrifices, but as Hebrew says, he will offer his own body as a sacrifice for his people. And then lead us, who are saved, who are declared right with God, who are the body of the Messiah, lead us in offering our lives as a living sacrifice of worship, Romans reminds us, and Hebrews 13. Through him we offer our, our lives as a sacrifice of praise, and we offer our lives as living sacrifices. And we're going to see the character of that through suffering and trials of verses 8 through 12. So the sacrifice, this burnt offering, is going to depict a living sacrifice. It's going to be reflected in praise in verses 16 through 19, praising God. It's a living sacrifice. But even as God works in our lives through trials and sufferings, your life becomes a living sacrifice as you're shaped and transformed to reflect the character of our Messiah, our King. It's our whole life becomes a living sacrifice. Not to earn God's favor. We're already in God's favor through redemption. We're already accepted. We're already in his family. Okay, so that's the character and contours of Psalm 66. Let's look at praise for God's redeeming name. Here, I just again, let's revisit one through four. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Notice how expanded this is. Reminds me of Isaiah 54, when the promise of the new covenant, he says, expend the pegs of the tent, expand those things, make the stakes secure. I'm going to open up. Not only salvation for Jews, but also for the nations. Isaiah 54. Which reminds us of Genesis 9, when God promised to Noah that he would secure the house of Shem, but bring Japheth in through the house of Shem. That is, he's going to bring the Gentile nations represented in uh, Japheth into the tents. So therefore, with the, the ultimate redeeming work of the Messiah, his congregation is going to include the whole earth. Jews and Gentiles saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm sorry, I stopped. I got excited. Verse two, seeing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. What's the relevance of name here? Seeing the glory of his name. Well, name underlines the substance of one's character, in this case, is referring to God's character, who he is. We may talk about his name in terms of his attributes, and then we walk through uh, the character of God, his power and sovereignty and love and mercy and grace and kindness, his, and all, that he's all-knowing, omniscient, all-present, pre, all omnipresent, his wisdom, his knowledge, his truth, his justice. We're just seeing the glory of his name, who he is. Give to him glorious praise. Glory underlines weightiness and value and worth. So he's inviting us to actually make God's praise glorious. But get this, 
What's the worth of the praise? What's the weightiness of the praise? In measure to his name. So in other words, as we consider God's name, as we consider God's glory, which is we're going to see is reflected in redemption. That's the height of God's glory reflected in redemption. That's where it's put on display like no other. You want to see his name? You want to see his character? It's going to be in redemption. Because there you're going to see grace and justice. So look at these two things that look like they cannot go together are going to be found together at the cross. His holiness and love, his mercy and his sovereignty. These things that don't seem to go together. Judgment and salvation. What in the world? The work of God reflected in redemption. That's where we're going to see. That's where he's driving us to, is to look through the lens of redemption to see the glory of his name. That's where he's unveiled himself. And that then ignites glorious praise. So when our praise is weak, it's often because we've lost sight of how glorious God is. And if we need to see God's glory, the glory of his name, we need to see the cross again. We need to see redemption again and be reminded of who we are outside, how we, let me say this, who we were outside of his grace it's helpful that remember Ephesians 2, 1, I was dead in trespasses and sins to evoke a, a awe and worship for the fact that he has saved me by his grace and rescued me. That evokes praise and adoration, even considering that God would do this for me. What's in a name? Well, if you've traveled to a foreign nation, especially for the first time, especially for the first time, you start to get used to things. You know the ruts a little bit. But first time, don't understand the language, shut out from communication. I don't understand the culture. I'm shut out from relationships. I'm not a citizen. I have no privileges. It seems like everybody's against me. <laughs> the soldier over there with that gun or weapon, it, 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 it's being like just swung around. <laughs> and I'm every once in a while, uh, right there, it's lined on me it, just because it's being moved around uh, seemingly carelessly. Not to say it's always the case, but I remember that scared the death out of me. I was like, what? What am I going to do? What I needed was somebody's name. Somebody's name. When I, the first questions I was asked by the customs and border protection officers was, who are you here to see? Who are you staying with? Who is your connection? What is your relationship to him? What is his address and phone number, right? And you're like, I'm going to die. I am not going to make through this. Oh, boy. But to know the name, that was power. And then to see my friend show up and be able to communicate in multiple languages and usher me through, get me to the house and say, here's your bed. Here's some food. Ministry starts tomorrow. You felt like you're on to something right? What's in a name? The name is everything in that moment. You don't have a name. You're in trouble. What are you doing here? Well, I don't know. I'm just going to turn around and go right back. Think of the name. When God covenanted with Abraham, he gave him the name Abraham. And to Jacob, he gave the name Israel. When God established a saving relationship with Abraham, Abraham worshiped God by calling on his name. Moses, He's about ready to head back to Egypt. And God has revealed himself, Mount Moriah and the burning bush. And Moses says, well, what is your name? I mean, I'm going to go in there and, and, and boldly 
pronounce judgment on Pharaoh. I need to know your name. Because <laughs> they're going to ask, what is your name? And God says, I am self-existent. I am has sent me to you. He's a self-existent one. Oh, whoa. It's personal. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So his name is personal. And he's redeeming in verse 17 of Exodus 3. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Self-existence, relationship, redemption. This is connected to the context of God's name. Is any wonder that Gabriel told Mary to name Jesus, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is given and his saving work is identified. Or Romans ten thirteen, we call on the name of the Lord. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So to know God's name, to sing praises to his name, underlines the fact that God has brought that person into a relationship with him. But how can that be? I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel because he's redeemed me. And he saved me for himself. And so the psalmist invites praise. He invites us to be in awe, to worship. Remember, years ago, my family and I attended my grandfather's funeral. And I, I knew him as a grandson who cared for my family. He, he worked on the railroad and eventually retired. But I knew him differently when at his funeral... Representatives of the army played the taps, fired a 21-gun salute, and honored him with the U.S. flag. I knew him now as a defender of my country. The gravitas, the, the weight, the worth, my estimation, my praise grew. And he didn't grow. He didn't change at all. This was just an announcement, a memorial of his worth. God announces the glory of his name in his redemptive acts. And calls us to join together as a congregation to sing, to reflect, to announce, come and see what God has done. He turned the sea into dry land. So we're considering the theme of redemption, that I might be in awe of his name. Before we move on to verses 8 through 20 and consider his sanctifying work, Let me just focus a little bit on this aspect of turning the sea into dry land. There he passed through the river on foot. Verse 6, turning. I just want to draw on the word turning. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because, remember, Luke 9.31, Christ is talking about his exodus at the transfiguration. He's about to go to the cross and redeem people. So the Red Sea for him, if you will, is the passing through the veil of death and suffering to the grave and to rise again ascended to lead a people into the promised land, to the holy temple of heaven. That's, that's the ultimate goal. So when we think of turning, to turn something against us for us, the cross, which is Christ's exodus, is a symbol of God's curse upon sin. Why does God choose the cross? Deuteronomy says that cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. Think about, why would they be cursed? One who's hung on a tree is a symbol of rejection from heaven and rejection from earth. And it was fitting for Jesus to be seen as the one rejected by heaven and by earth. Why is he rejected by heaven? Because he bore our sins. Why is he rejected by earth? Because we are sinners and we oppose God. The cross announces sin like no other. Through the cross, we see our sin against God. 
Sin despises and hates God and his work. Well, that's what we did at the cross. That's what we've done to this glorious son of God. Sin is blind to God's beauty and glory. All I see is this wretched cross and one despised and rejected of men. Sin is rebellious against God's sovereignty and rule and law. We put him at the cross. That was our answer to the blessed one who walked in this sin-cursed world. That was our answer. And the cross reminds us. It reveals every man's heart opposed to God. Sin is manifested by redefining God's truth, justice, and goodness. So we spin it. We're sinners, but we try to make ourselves good. So we live as these perpetual hypocrites, judging others but condemning ourselves. And the cross puts it right out there. This is sin to God. It is God's definition of truth and justice and goodness as we see Christ. And sin is reflected in the desire to eradicate God's presence in both heaven and earth. The pursuit of suppressing his attributes as are revealed in creation and the rejection and replacement of God's revelation of himself as we reject the cross. Luther said, the theology of glory goes around the cross. It uses the principle of the works of the law or reaping and sowing to try to establish a relationship with God, which was valid for Adam. He was called to obey, to be blessed, disobey, to be cursed. Valid for Jesus Christ, who obeyed and is blessed and took our disobedience so that he became a curse, valid there, but for sinners to try to approach God through the law, no way. And the theology of glory, Luther says, tries to do that. It looks at the basic principles of moral order and says, I can do it. And when it deals with sin and failure, it tries to cover it with a veneer. Luther said, no one can approach God through the theology of glory. It's a theology of my glory. The theology of the cross, Luther says, is what God has laid up to confront the theology of glory. There at the cross, God shows us our sin and then shows us the provision behind that. In other words, to see God's grace, to, to, to receive his mercy and salvation, we must first come to the cross and see our sin. God has ordained it that way to confront our theology of glory. It's at the cross that we come and our pride is crushed. Our great accomplishments are crushed because this is what it deserves. As we realize that my sin was poured upon, put imputed to Jesus Christ and his righteousness through faith is imputed to me. We're confronted with God's grace and my sin, the theology of the cross. Luther also says that's a powerful tool to understand our life as we're going to see in verses eight and following. That if God saves us through the suffering of the cross, then he's going to sanctify us through the same means. Not for our ultimate salvation. Justification is secure. We're in Christ. But if his method is the cross, then in bearing your cross and your daily cross bearing, this is how he's going to grow you. He's going to give you trials and sufferings to humble you like silver is refined through fire to take out the dross. The theology of glory says I should be blessed for all that I do. I should be esteemed for giving love to my friends, but they're not esteeming me. Something's wrong with my life. The theology of the cross says, ah, but God gives grace to the weak and the sinner, and he brings suffering into our lives to humble us so that we might cling to his grace. I can reflect that in my life towards others. The theology of the cross, the theology of glory. At the cross, the arm of God is revealed like no other. I'm taking this term turn and just using it metaphorically as a picture. God turned the sea into dry land. I'm asking, what did he turn at the ultimate exodus? 
Well, he overturned our sin with his salvation in Christ. Christ received the wounds of God so that he would provide spiritual healing to me. And he symbolized it even in the piercing of his side when blood and water poured out. A symbol of life-giving and cleansing poured out from heaven by his spirit upon the nations. By his wounds were healed. Christ received the piercing and stripes of God for my sin that he might provide eternal comfort to us. Christ was wrapped, no, he he embraced the darkness of God's judgmental presence because of my sin imputed to him. He was wrapped in a cloak of judgment, symbolized in the darkness, the physical darkness, and the earth that was shaken, torn, and rendered. So he embraced the darkness and the wrath and the terror of God's judgment so that from that cross, he would clothe us in everlasting life, light, and glory. You see the exchange taking from Christ to give to us. Christ received the words of God's judgment spoken against him, for he received the imputation of my sin and guilt. So God's judgment was his speaking against Christ in order that he might speak promise and comfort to your hearts, that he might say, truly, Truly that your sins are forgiven. You are declared right with God. You are accepted. The cross is beautiful for us. Christ for us was deprived of God's blessed presence. The comfort of being in God's eternal bosom. And we're talking about his humanity here in relation to his human nature. Because John 1 describes Christ as being in the bosom of the Father. He was deprived of that blessed presence to bring you and I into the comfort of the Father's embrace. Christ willingly, lovingly, sacrificially received the crushing blows of God's powerful arm, Isaiah 53, the arm of God revealed, his arm of justice, so that you and I could have peace and security of righteousness forever. Christ was forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That no one, Romans 8, or no thing would able be able to separate us from the love of God. Christ was abandoned by God to the grave, the realm of the dead, that he might be present in you and with you by the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit, gifting faith in Christ to receive his justification so that God's eternal law would actually not be against you ever, but actually would be for you like nothing else. Think of it, eternal law, perfection, now for you because Christ has met the demands for you. And he gives you life in Christ to grow in his sanctifying character so that God's character will be impressed on your life. And he gives you the promise of a heavenly body to clothe our souls, a heavenly home to provide refuge, a forever family so that you might rejoice under the sovereign and good rule of God as your father and king. That's the theology of the cross. Remember Professor Klein talking to a number of atheists in this way, and they said, that's just pie in the sky, Klein. And he said, oh, give me that pie in the sky. That's my hope. It's Jesus Christ. I love Psalm 66, verse 7. Who rules by his might forever. He is eternal, and he rules eternally. We're not quite seeing the manifestation of that fully and completely in a sin-cursed world. And redemption is an invasion, if you will, of his rule in judgment and salvation at the cross in the Exodus event to remind us that he does rule. It's an intrusion of God's eternal rule into the cross event so that we can see 
God for who he is and his work in judgment and salvation. Verse 7 also says, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. If he's going to do that at the cross, if he will judge, if the father will judge the son, the son will receive the judgment for our salvation. And that was the way of grace. Don't let the rebel exalt themselves. I, I remember had a family dog for years. His name was Rookie. Grew up with the kids. He was one of the family. Many of you know how this works. We have fish that kind of function that way too. So don't feel bad if you don't have a dog. Just trying to empathize with you. Anyway, I felt bad when the dog died. And I just like, I, I just get, th- this is a great time to promote stuff to me because I'll just like go with it. He just grabbed my cheek there. So anyway, I go to the pound. I mean, literally, it probably was that week. Go to the pound. And I find this dog that reminded me of a movie that we watched uh, with my family when they were kids, The Sandlot. And what kind of dog is in there? <laughs> a bull mastiff, English mastiff? Well, there is an English mastiff. It's like the largest dog in the world as far as poundage. This thing was less than two years old, and he was 200 pounds. His name was Brutus, and we named him Hercules. And we did, you know, all the stuff you're supposed to do. I have a German shepherd female. We felt like she was sad. She seemed to be moping, lost her best friend. So we did the whole courting thing that you're supposed to do. Well, this is Saturday. It's Sunday morning. I'm going to come and teach Sunday school. And I'm sitting there at the table, or it's early in the morning, let the dogs out. And Mr. Hercules, or Brutus, whatever you want to call him, dog, he becomes a bully. And he sticks that massive big face, which you got to see our house. They, They sit in this little little uh, laundry room that's just so small and this little baby gate because Robin's deal is they stay in the room. They don't wander around the house. And I'm like, okay with that yard and this, the baby gate that can jump over if somebody breaks in. Imagine this big brute in this little thing with my German shepherd, this little tiny room. So he's, he's bullying her. He's sticking his massive face in, in her face. And we're in, they were in the backyard and my little Roxy goes running to the backyard hiding And Robin comes out for the morning and I said, that's it. The dog's going back. Can't handle it. I I tried that. We do this thing where we try to flip them on their back. You know, that's a deal that you do to test dogs to see if they're going to lay low with the master, allow me to put him down and, and, and just accept it. Couldn't do it. I'm on his back trying to lock out his legs and roll him over. It's like, I thought if I can't do it, my wife can't do it. This dog needs to go back. And I didn't feel so bad. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. God is a glorious shepherd. He loves his sheep. Those who would stand up in opposition to God and his people, God is against. He invites us to come to Christ, to the Lamb. Well, his redemption encourages our hearts to consider God's greatness, but also his refining work, his refining work. And for here, I'm just going to drop I want you just to see these broad categories. We've already read 8 through 12, but I want you to see that he's acknowledging that God is going to sanctify his people through suffering. In verses 13 through 15, the leader is now ceremonially offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. They're burnt offerings. So they're emphasizing again, um, sanctifying worship. It's a thanksgiving offering. In verses 16 through 19, his life, he's pronouncing to God praise and inviting others to hear him. And in verse 20, he marvels at the covenant of grace. It's called the steadfast love, the covenant of love. Hesed is our Hebrew term there that anchors all of this, that allows God to be for me in this covenant of grace. So first of all, just look at his sanctifying influence that just evokes praise. 
We're called in verse 8 to bless our God. But again, notice, and we've read it a number of times, uh, verse 10, there's testing. We're, we're tested like silver's tried in verse 10. We're brought into a net, crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. It's evoking a depiction of a conqueror like Assyria or Babylon or Egypt that crushes um, Israel and the chariots right over their heads. It's a depiction of uh, despair, of intense suffering, of conquest. But notice there's the corporate character here. You have tried us. You brought us. Verse 12, you let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water using two metaphors to describe one extreme to another, fire through water. And then the conclusion, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. And here's why I want to get a little personal and practical. America, the theology of glory, as Luther would say it, we love individualism. And we promote our, our best life now and our best moment now. But when things don't go well and we are hit with suffering and trials, what's the American response? Depression, turn away from others, hide. It's myself, me, myself, and I. I'm going to try to conquer this. And maybe if I can overcome it, I can come out and use that as a testimony and promotion of how to overcome things. I'm going to market that. That's not the picture that we see here in 8 through 12. It's corporate trials. You see, God has provided sanctifying trials for us corporately together. Galatians 6, 1 reminds us we're to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. These trials are meant to refine us like silver is refined. We've seen that here. To bring us out into a place of abundance, whether that's personal, um, think of God working in our character and that, and the, our outer man's decaying, right? Our inner man's being renewed day by day. So while we're being crushed on the outside, what God is intending to do is bring about gentleness and humility and love and patience and kindness. So we can talk about abundance there, or we can talk about abundance in the sense of leading us to heaven as the ultimate abundance. But notice the emphasis is corporate. Boy, we have a problem with that. We don't like to have people involved in our sufferings. And this is meant to remind us that God is busy working in all of our lives and our different aspects of sufferings, humbling us, causing us to look to his ultimate plan of redemption in Christ, longing for heaven. And when we share one another's sufferings, we're able to get these different nuances that God is using in our life to refine each one of us. Think if we abandon a loved one who's, who's dying, dying well, but we're not there to minister and pray with them, then we too don't learn about how to deal with suffering and how to deal with death. The corporate nature, it produces great praise as we see God working in each of our lives as we're resting in redemption, looking for our hope in heaven, and seeing God work to refine silver, to refine our lives. Notice the response then in 13 through 15. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I'll perform my vows to you. In verse 15, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Now, there are three different aspects to sacrifices, and I'm not going to be able to unfold all of them, but there are the aspect of justification that was symbolized in the um, lamb in which the priest, on behalf of the people or the father and his family, would symbolically transfer, so it's symbolically transfer his sins by admitting and confessing his sins to, to the animal, to the lamb or to the goat. So it's symbolic. It's representative. Now, that goat 
is either expiated. So you have two goats, right, that are brought here. One is expiated off into the wilderness, bearing the sins as far as the east is from the west picture. And then one is sacrificed, acknowledging propitiation. The, those, that ordeal, if you will, symbolizes justification. Sins removed, sins atoned and propitiated. Now, that blood then was sprinkled on the altar and everything to, to allow for, if you will, a sanctifying of the instruments that were going to take the burnt offerings, the thanksgiving offerings. So get the picture. You got the symbols of, of justification. We're declared right with God. We're accepted. Our sins are dealt with. That blood then sanctifies the altar. And then from that altar now, it's, it's acceptable to God. These burnt offerings and incense offerings and thanks offerings are placed upon that. Okay, representing sanctification. Let me add one more. The incense offerings and burnt offerings, there's a transfer that happens as this uh, grilling of the animal. So it's going to have grill smells, like a good grill today, which is coming up, right? Hamburgers or steaks, whatever you got going on. It's going to smell like that. And there's a transfer of that to the heavens. It's a depiction moving into glorification of something being offered wholly and completely to God and being transferred from, from animal to incense and, and smells that are pleasing. We talk about, Ephesians talking about Christ being a pleasing aroma. So we have all three levels, justification, sanctification, and glorification brought out in these beautiful pictures. This is emphasizing sanctification. The altar's already been, been sprinkled with the blood, so it's set apart. And now he's offering burnt offerings, the whole offering to the Lord, which is a testament of our lives, which have been set apart. We're already justified. You are an altar. That's the depiction of offering a living sacrifice. You're a living priest as well in your sanctification as you uh, intercede for other believers. Peter describes this as, but you're also a living altar. And you are offering your praise and your words and your very life as a whole burnt offering, as a whole life to the Lord. That's the depiction going on here. So the representative for the people, which is pointing ultimately to the Messiah, who will offer his life, he'll sanctify himself, and he provides atonement and expiation for our sins. And now we're justified through faith in Christ. Now he, he gives, he gives, this is fascinating, the Messiah now, the, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, is using you and I as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. Now we're already accepted. This is a praise sacrifice. This is thanksgiving offerings. It's in the depiction of grain offerings in the Old Testament. That's why your whole life is to be representative of the Lord, not to gain his favor, but because you're already in him and accepted. What a beautiful picture. And then he brings us to 16 through 19. Now it transfers from the burnt offering pictures right to the praise in, in the, the whole life. Come, verse 16, and hear all you who fear God... And I will tell what he's done for my soul. See the corporateness to this? We've moved through uh, looking at redemption. That's our security. I'm in the family. Now he's the principle of sanctification in my life through trials, which we are to go through corporately and share corporately, to the offering the life as a burnt offering, to now look at the, the fruit of that, to praise God and to say, come, look at what God has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth. High praise was on my tongue. Now, we get to the guilt, grace, gratitude section. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Now, remember the whole testimony of scripture? We love guilt, grace, gratitude. Let's use guilt, grace, gratitude here. 
If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Outside of Christ, yep, you're not accepted. He's only going to hear prayers that reflect Christ, confessing your sin and coming through Jesus Christ. Does he hear them as in he's present? Absolutely. Does he hear them favorably as a father? No. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But then we're thrown with something. We're not given the answer. Well, what... What has happened here? Verse 19, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. So is this psalmist perfect? Does he have no iniquity in his heart? Ah, he has grace. Verse 20, blessed be God because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast. There it is. That's a hesed, our word for covenant grace. It's his marriage covenant of salvation. He has not removed his steadfast love from me. That's the answer. I am a sinner. I have sin in my heart. Therefore, God should not listen, but he has provided salvation in his covenant love. That is, he's for me. He won't take that away from me. Therefore, he will not reject my prayer. He has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And now we respond with gratitude. Guilt outside of Christ. I I have wickedness in my heart. But praise God, in covenant of grace, his steadfast love, he's paid for my sins. That's grace. And now I have the confidence that he hears me because of Christ's perfect heart, because Christ was perfect and had no sin in his heart. That's the grace that I stand on to know that he answers my prayers. And close with this as we move to the Lord's Supper is just a fitting response because it's a memorial, it's a ceremony that the Lord has given to us to reflect on the new covenant. And as you grab your cups and work on those lids. And I invite Mike to come forward to play the background music for us to meditate on the gospel. As he's doing that, a few years ago, my family and I spent time sorrowing with some family friends who had lost their 13-year-old to a seizure. My kids grew up with Isaac. He was like an adopted sibling. And they to him and the, the sisters and brothers. Well, he had a seizure seemingly alone. He was in the bathroom in the lower floor, lower level basement. And his sister, his sister ended up finding him. Called the paramedics. They were not able to revive him for four days. He was put on a machine and eventually had to take him off the machine because it was evident that he had long gone. Now, my family spent time with their family about four days. And one of the haunting questions that they asked was, was he alone when he died? Well, he had professed faith in Christ. He had recently been baptized as a a reflection of that profession of faith in Christ, identity with God. So I I knew that he had personally trusted in Jesus. But it was passages like this in Psalm 22 where Christ says, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Christ died, if you will, alone. But in verse 24, provides a beautiful answer to us. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. God promises to listen to our prayers. He's there with us. He's there for us. Christ, John 14 says, I'll come and lead you to my, my home. I'm going to come and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Christ promises to be personally present in our lives, promises to lead us to home because he was forsaken for us. And we glory in that and ask that you just remind us 
we need each other to be reminded of these things. So keep using our lives to remind us of the gospel and to be pointed to Christ Jesus. Pray that you would bless even this day as we uh, celebrate this uh, nation on July 4th and Independence Day, but ultimately be reminded of that which undergirds our hearts, that we have a promised land, a celestial city that is secured for us. And we have that because of Christ's redemption day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.